0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 106th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways, like our graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Spencer Jacob, and before I even get into introducing our guest, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, use the comment sections to type in your questions and we'll get to as many of them as we can. So our guest, Spencer Jacob, is an award-winning financial journalist and the editor of Heard on the Street, the Wall Street Journal's financial and economic analysis column. Mr. Jacob is also uh, the author of two books, including his second one, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the fleecing of small investors, which explains the riveting story behind the January 2021 GameStop meme stock event that rocked some of the biggest players in the investment world. So, Spencer, thank you again for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So uh, first, our audience always is interested in origin stories, so perhaps uh, you have a a rather unique one. You'll share a bit about your story. Um, Your parents, if I understand, emigrated um, from Hungary as refugees 65 years ago uh, with next to nothing. You grew up bilingual, and um, for the first chapter of your career, you helped American companies get a foothold in uh, formerly Soviet bloc states. So I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about that story, and perhaps um, how your parents' experience may have influenced your perspective today. Sure.
1: Well, my dad was a a 56 refugee, and uh, in 1956, there was a there was a revolution in Hungary and uh, about 2% of the country walked across the border, 180,000 people. Uh, and He was one of them. And um, of those, uh, about 80,000 came to the United States and the rest went to, to other countries, to Sweden, Australia, Switzerland, Germany, what have you. And um, my mom actually uh, is, is a bit different category. She came 10 years later. So my my dad, you know, Hungary kind of wised up and decided to let people who weren't, you know, really dangerous and oppositional to come back and, and spend their hard currency there. And, uh, he came back to get his father out, uh, and his brother, uh, we sort of smuggled his brother out basically, but he got his father out legally, uh, 10 years later and his father and, uh, and my mom's mother lived in the same building. Um, and, um, they introduced their, their children. My mom, uh, was 10 years younger and, um, he was there for many, many weeks, uh, trying to get his dad out, and they they met, met there. And so my mom left in 1966, and I was born a few years later, uh, and my sister was born a year after me. Um, so yeah, it definitely influenced me, being the the child of of emigres. It you know it has a has a big influence uh, because um, you know the, it's well the the kind of the economic anxiety that they lived through, but also having grown up in a in a communist country. And I would say that you know, they experienced it uh, in different ways. So my mom was born during World War II. My dad had some experience of, of life, I mean, a very, very poor life, but a, a life before communism. Um, and so you know, people uh, of, of his generation, I think you know, had a sort of a knowledge of the before, and my mom really did not. Uh, her whole uh, experience as a, as a child and a teenager and a young person was in a communist society, um, and and so she's a bit different than those people, and that made me a bit different too. Because a lot of the people who grew up bilingual when the Iron Curtain fell, Iron Curtain fell during my, my college years, uh, the, towards the end of my college years, uh, who said, "Hey, you know, I'm I grew up bilingual, and not everybody did. Uh, I can uh, maybe I can move back and use my skills and help a company, and and you know, and apply myself." Uh, we're all ten years older than me in the case of, of people who moved to Hungary because of, you know, they, their parents were in their 20s in the 1950s. Uh, my mom uh, was in her 20s in the 1960s. And so I was really the, the right age. I had no, uh, nothing to lose. Uh, I had no career to to speak of. And so a lot of the people I think who went to to Hungary, I think were already sort of, maybe they were failing at their careers or not particularly successful at their careers. Uh, because if you were really, really successful, you're going to pick up and I moved to this poor East European country, whereas for me it was, you know, it was just so exciting. And there was, you know, I, I really had nothing. Uh, I was uh, doing my masters at Columbia University, and um, I met uh, a, a kid who had been an investment banker. I had no idea about finance. My parents obviously didn't know anybody on Wall Street, and this kid said, "Yeah, you know, he had been an investment banker. He's a 56-year-old kid now. We're still friends," and he told me what investment banking was because I was curious. And he said, yeah, you know, you're totally bilingual. They're going to privatize everything in, in Central and Eastern Europe. You should go get a job there being completely bilingual. Just take all the finance course if you can at Columbia Business School while you're here, which I did. I liked it a lot. And and so I made that career switch. And I worked in finance for the first 10 years of my career before becoming a financial journalist, which I've done for the last 19 long answer to your question
0: spectacular uh no very interesting about your dad obviously ayn rand um much earlier was one of the the first um refugees from uh, from soviet the soviet union um itself so uh i, I bet they would have had some interesting stories too to i'm share. sure yeah So uh, continuing down the family tree, the opening line, the opening sentence of your uh, book is arresting to say the least. Mm -hmm. Uh, You write, I'll never forget the day I found out that my sons were degenerates. Um, Explain what you meant by Mm -hmm. that and how the revelation actually led to your decision to write the book.
1: Yeah, well, my sons are very nice boys, um, and they're not doing anything naughty. Uh, but yeah, I always want to get people's attention with that book. So degenerates are, are what people on uh, a particular subreddit that was very influential, that's very central to my story, call themselves. They call themselves other uh, things that I, I really can't repeat in a, a PG-rated podcast. But degenerates are one of the things that they they call one another. And the subreddit, it's on Reddit. It's a forum on Reddit called Wall Street Bets. It went from having, let's say the the beginning of of my story, uh, slightly over 1 million people on it, which is a lot for a a subreddit, but by no means the most. It made it maybe the 200th most important subreddit to having 2 million right at the beginning of the story as things started to heat up, to having 11 million as the story matured. So it it exploded in size. And I have three sons, one who's now uh, 23, he was a, a college senior at the time of the events, and one who just turned 16 today, uh, and he was a co- uh, high school freshman at the beginning of the events. And they're both very active on Reddit, and they were on this forum. And as my oldest son, who was home because of COVID from college, his senior year, and walked over to me, I was, I was at home too, and he said, Dad, are you gonna write something about GameStop? And uh, GameStop, uh, at this time, is a failing mall-based video game retailer that I had driven all my sons to at various times over the years of you know like a lot you know we, we were there a lot we had not been there in a few years not just because of the pandemic was because it you know physical media were going um out of fashion in video games it still exists but you know games have become digitized so it was kind of like blockbuster video a few years before uh before streaming completely took over there was really no reason to to get the discs or even have them mailed to you and and that's at It was at that stage, it had been losing money for years that GameStop was. And I took a look at it and I saw that it had doubled, the stock had doubled in the last couple of days. Um, And the reason that it had doubled is that they were talking about it on Wall Street Bets. Wall Street Bets in the, maybe, I I was aware of it, you know, because I'm at the Wall Street Journal and I'm a markets uh, person. I edit this this markets column. And I had seen that stocks that were mentioned there would go up a lot and they go down a lot. And so it would just be like a flash in the pan. And he mentioned it because a friend of his had bought the stock. And I, I don't want to, you know, kind of give advice to anybody, specific financial advice. I'll give general financial advice. But I said, listen, your friend, I known this kid since he was, you know, up fairly above my knee. Uh, I, I think he should should sell because there's a flash in the pan. And he said, no, 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 he's not going to sell. That's the idea is they can't sell. And so that caught my attention. And and so that's, that's the crux of this story. And it took me probably 10 minutes to see that something crazy was was going on from a financial point of view, which is that the people on this forum were attempting to do something that had not been successfully done for about a century, which was to kind of uh, put in a corner on a stock. And uh, corners happen sometimes in commodity markets, very, very difficult to do in the stock market since the SEC has existed because a corner is basically, where just to explain for people who might not be familiar, there are some people who bet against the stock uh, and most people bet that a stock will rise, who own it. And when you bet against the stock, what you do is you open yourself up to theoretically unlimited losses. You, you borrow the stock without owning it, you sell it, and then you hope to buy it back at a lower price. But of course, the difference between the price where you sold it and the price where you buy it back, the most you're going to make is 100%. But your losses are theoretically unlimited. You can lose infinity percent if a stock keeps on going up. And so you, then you have to buy it back. And sometimes there are short squeezes, which happen all the time, which is that people have sold a stock short. And then there's like a kind of stampede to reverse the trade and to, to kind of cover their losses or stanch the bleeding, they'll buy it back. And it's kind of a stampede. But what this was, was a deliberate attempt to do that, which is not legal to do. Like I you and I couldn't both have hedge funds and gang up on a third hedge fund that we knew was selling a stock short, and, and squeeze them that way. But what was happening here was that this was being discussed openly, had been discussed for weeks in a forum that nobody on Wall Street had bothered to look at, but had over 2 million members that day. Um, and they were and there were some sophisticated people who were, used pseudonyms on that board who explained to them how to do it with the maximum effectiveness to get the most bang for the buck, which is to generate, and I explain it in the book, it sounds wonky, but it's, I, I do explain it, something called a gamma squeeze. And they caused this stock from trough to peak to go up a thousandfold, uh, And it became the most traded security in the world. It pulled up a whole bunch of other stocks with it. And that is an incredible story by itself. Uh, and I had a half written book proposal about something else that I was going to at some point send to Penguin Random House and publish my first book. And I just sent an email to the acquisitions editor who I didn't really know. And I said, this incredible thing is happening. Uh, you should be aware of it. I, I'd love to write a book about it. And she said, that's great. She wrote right back, which is amazing too. And she said, "I can you do you have a proposal? I haven't heard about that. I said, no, no, this is happening now. Like You're going to start reading about this in a few hours. And that week there were... Over 1,000 articles in the English language alone about this phenomenon It was the biggest thing. Every late-night talk show host was talking about it. President Biden was asked about it, who had just been inaugurated. Uh, it was it was a big, big, big story for the next six or seven days. It was one of the most. I, I think it was the most searched Google term uh, that week too uh, in, in many countries. And so, GameStop was a big phenomenon, and and that's what I thought a book would be about it. And they immediately said, yes, we want you to write about this. But within a few days, it got even crazier because what happened, um, as I tell the story in my book, is that all these people were creating a lot of pressure on these, these hedge funds. And all of a sudden, the main broker that was the broker to all these, these mainly young male investors who were doing this no longer allowed them to keep buying the stock or to buy options on the stock, which is what was pushing it up. And so it was seen as this, cra- this stab in the back and it was seen as a, a sign of collusion by insiders on Wall Street. And it still to this day has spawned lots and lots of conspiracies. It, it spurred congressional hearings, politicians on the left and the right were uh, united in condemning it and, and, that, and they were wrong. That's not what happened. Uh, and as, as I explain in my book, uh, there wasn't a conspiracy um and and actually what happened is that all these these financial firms that had really gotten rich off of a phenomenon that was going you know going back a year going back to before just before the beginning of the pandemic had drawn all these young traders in uh had done too good of a job and gotten them too excited and this was the kind of the apex of the mania and they just they almost fried the the financial system and so that's what the book explains it explains how we got there and it goes back to 2019 explains how cheap money and free commissions and, um, you know, and, and fiscal stimulus, and all these other things all played a role in creating this this story. Um, and, and people, I, a lot of people are angry at me for writing this because they want the romantic narrative that these guys gave Wall Street a black eye uh, and then they, the, the plug was pulled and they were stabbed in the back. And that's just not true. But the story is incredible anyway um, and, and very interesting and very instructive about what's going on in our economy and in finance.
0: You must've had to write the book pretty quickly.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I told them that, uh, listen, the, the the book should come out on the anniversary of, of the events, uh, because there'll be, and I thought at the time that it was gonna be this flash in the pan and that a year later, there would be all these reminiscences about how crazy it was. And that's what we agreed. And that's what the, the contract said. And so um, I basically, spent every waking hour that I wasn't uh, editing uh, at the Wall Street Journal. I'd literally fall asleep at my keyboard every night uh, working on this every weekend, used all my vacation time. And I had a manuscript uh, done by the the summer of 2021. So basically seven months later, uh, there was a a completed manuscript and the book did come out, although unfortunately, um, supply chain problems then delayed it by a week, which was really aggravating. But yeah, so I, I wrote it very quickly for a book. Books don't don't have usually happen that quickly, uh, but it turns out that it, it has remained a story and remained interesting because it didn't die down. Like all these these conspiracy theories that stemmed from trading being halted have continued to this day, and it, it morphed into other weird things. And so these these meme stocks have had a second and third and fourth and fifth life uh, since. The story happened.
0: So um, it's just to place some context on this and, and get some of the, the background and the players, but a lot of the headlines, a lot of the frothy coverage was about this is a watershed moment mm-hmm. and um, the p- power is being placed back in the hands of ordinary investors and mm-hmm. they're sticking it to, to Wall Street. But, but you say actually that's not what happened at all so um yeah unfortunately it it,
1: it it isn't i mean it's a worthy story for sure and it's a crazy story and i think the story and I, I i try to tell you know tell the story i do i think i do tell the story in a way that even though you kind of know how it ends um it it does build suspense and you're you get very interested in the characters so it's a it's a combination of of an you know kind of a narrative tiktok type story and and then also along the way explaining all the things that were going on and the history of those things, of short selling. and What is a Gamma Squeeze? How, you know, how did all this happen? What's what's the the impact of free money? How did social media play into it? How did these gamified trading apps play into it? Um, yeah, but it, 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 it was not a, a revolution in that sense. I mean, these people thought that they're getting a twofer and they got a zero for they, they thought that they were going to get rich and they thought that they were... Um, you know, w- mortally wounding Wall Street and turning the tables. And the thing is that, you know, Wall Street, uh, I hate to be a party pooper, but Wall Street is a big place. So there were some people who lost a lot of money on Wall Street. There's a, a hedge fund that just recently closed down now, um, subsequent to the, the publication of my book, that lost its investors $7 billion mm-hmm. in the course of a few days. And there are other hedge funds that lost billions of dollars. But, you know, hedge funds are not Wall Street. And, and there are a lot of hedge funds that were much quieter about it that made a lot of money. So hedge funds as a group made more money than they lost. Investment banks made a, a ton of money off of this whole phenomenon. Um, and and the middlemen on Wall Street made lots and lots of money on this phenomenon. They did not lose, although one of them almost went out of business, which I, I do explain how that happened, uh, and almost took down some other firms with it, which is a story that's not talked about at all. Uh, but they wall street writ large really likes when this happens it really likes it when people get excited and think that they can can beat wall street and if you look at the and then people will write back to me and say you're lying there's a conspiracy oh and i made a lot of money well i i am not lying it's not a conspiracy and maybe you made a lot of money i i can't look at everyone's brokerage statement and and verify that uh but there are people who made a lot of money during the dot-com boom there are people who made a lot of money during every Uh, mania and panic and crash in history and walked away with with more money than than they started with. Uh, Some of them are are deluding themselves and some of them are are telling fibs. But of course, there's some people who make money in any any crazy financial episode. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm saying that as a group, these people did not figure out a way to to beat Wall Street. And uh, and at the time, you know, there are people who were romanticizing it. Alexis Ohanian, uh, who's the, the co-founder of Reddit, Reddit, the, the social network you know, plays a pretty big role in this, said, you know, these people should start a hedge fund. They, they, they should get together and crowdsource a hedge fund. This is like you know mom and pop sticking it to the man, which is com- I mean, completely naive. You know, that's not at all, you can't do that. Uh, you shouldn't try to do that. Uh, hedge funds are hedge funds for a reason. They have very good computers and very smart people. Of course, they don't all do well or make money either. But a crowdsourced hedge fund is a terrible idea and a great way to, to burn up individuals' money. And, and a lot of these people regretted ever getting into this. And even if they lost small amounts of money and said, that's fine, I don't care that I lost money. OK, good. But there are much better ways to spend your money than than trying to, to blow up Wall Street, which you didn't do.
0: So um, I I want to to get to maybe the the motivation um, because at the Atlas Society, uh, we focus on philosophy, we Mm -hmm. focus on values, and and we also focus on vices. And and one of those is envy, uh, which Ayn Rand describes as Uh, the hatred of the good for being good. It's not just wanting what other people have, Mm -hmm. it's not just wanting to succeed, but it's wanting others to fail. So uh, I'd love to get into that, but I wanna remind all of you who are watching us on various platforms, um, I learned so much in reading this book and um, still learning. So if you have some questions or want to find out more about what happened with GameStop and also what's continuing to, to happen with AMC and all of these other, you know, meme stocks going around, please type in your questions and we will get to uh, as many of them as we can. So yeah, so getting to that, that motivation, um, it almost seems like the the ethos in some corners of wall street bets was similar or echoing that of occupy wall street and um you know where did that come from
1: yeah i mean first of all you you mentioned envy i think envy i agree is just a, a waste of, of energy i mean of of, of all the, the vices, that's the dumbest one right i mean you know what what do you it's just, just negative energy. but yeah, I don't think it, it was just envy, but um, I think it was resentment. I think you you have to look, I mean the, the people who were involved in this, and I, and I met people who are, uh, I'll be 53 this year. I met people who were, who were my age. I couldn't believe how many people I met like when I just was sort of casually mentioned, oh, yeah, I'm working on this book, Go, oh really? oh, I was involved in that, you know, <laughs> but it primarily uh, was um, let's say, I would say 80% male uh, as, as far as I can tell. In my unscientific survey uh, between the ages of 18 and 35 and um, and this is a group that was not invested in the markets uh, did not own a home when the uh, great financial crisis hit uh, but it's a formative experience for them and so it's not a group that 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 resents wealth necessarily it's a group that resents Wall Street specifically so like if you look at Elon Musk you know he's a he's a real Hero to a lot of these people, or you look at someone like um, Chamath Paliapitya, who I mentioned a lot in my book, who's the SPAC king, uh, special you know this kind of blank check company king. Uh, he kind of ing- ingratiated himself to this group and was viewed pretty favorably. And other people. Uh, so Silicon Valley wealth is is not hated, but Wall Street wealth is, and so it's like it's almost like this caricature, and, and and then hedge fund managers are the real cartoon villains of Wall Street, right? Like they're the, the people who you really, really hate. Uh, and, and, and that group specifically was um, was vilified by the Wall Street bets crowd. And so, yeah, I think that Occupy Wall Street, which is to me is just a kind of such a kind of an incoherent movement, but uh, a lot of that ethos came through where there was resentment at um, people losing their homes or or losing their savings. And uh, of course, they're... they're, they're was wrongdoing on Wall Street, but nobody, uh, not not that many crimes. And I think a lot of the crimes that were committed were committed on a on a lower level. It was a sort of a heads I win, tails you lose thing, and that's always the case on Wall Street, right? That's a that's a real problem with with Wall Street is that incentives are are misaligned. So whether it was uh, people at at big banks or hedge funds or wherever, during the financial crisis, they uh, they profited, but they weren't. Forced to to give back much of that wealth. You know, if you're at a hedge fund and you have five really good years and you're making 20 percent of uh, you know um, fees on on the the profits you make, and then you wipe out in the sixth year, you don't have to give that back. And so the way that the incentives are structured uh, is not very smart. But people know that going into it. People and then people don't read the fine print. And so it's you know I mean I think there are people who are uh, who were duped and uh, you know, in, in all kinds of financial products and didn't understand what they were signing up for. And then there are people who were simply didn't bother to read the fine print because they were very greedy and they wanted to, to get, you know, get rich, whether it was to kind of so- sign a, a liar loan that they know they shouldn't have qualified for or to invest in a product that seemed fishy, but they, they, they thought that they could make lots and lots of money. So I think the, the blame is, is evenly spread. Um, and you know, and that, that includes recent crypto blowups where people are, you know, they were making 20% a year. Like, why, why do you think you were making 20% a year? Um, I, I really, for a long time, and you, I, I started out talking about my, my parents who were both, uh, both immigrants. I saw a lot of, uh, of, of their contemporaries get sucked into these schemes, which is just so heartbreaking, um, where I, I just. And that's that's where I got interested in this kind sort of this gullibility and um, this this sort of problems with incentives in the in the financial system. I remember when I was still working on Wall Street, I was a director or a managing director. I, guess I was a director at that point in the equities department of investment bank. I was you know one of the youngest directors ever in in you know in the in that at that bank. There was a stock boom going on. I remember holding my my oldest son, who was a baby at the time, so it was like we're talking twenty three years ago, right at the just before the peak of the, uh, the dot-com bubble. And my mom's friends, who would all come here penniless, who'd all scrimped and saved, work very hard, sacrificed everything to have a nest egg, were all at or near retirement at the time, telling me how, first, first asking me about a bunch of dot-com stocks. And when I was telling them that I, they shouldn't be investing in it, it's not appropriate for their, their age and their risk tolerance, whatever, and then they cut me off and they're telling me how smart they were and how many times their money they'd made and loosened or, or whatever. And it's just, you know, when, when people kind of get bitten by that, that bug, I'm telling them, I'm the only person that they knew on Wall Street. I definitely had kind of the credentials, you know, to, to be able to tell them and no incentive to, to steer them away from it. I had nothing to gain. Telling them not to do it and friends of my mother-in-law's uh, who'd grown up in this country, you know, lost everything. I mean, you know, she had uh, friends lost their homes mm. after the financial crisis because they, they made unwise gambles on these things and they wouldn't listen to me. So it's, I mean, obviously, you know, Wall Street, the, the people who, who sold them these things are at fault then and during the financial crisis, but it, it's human nature that's at fault too. Um, and, and I think that's what people, after the fact, fail to, uh, to acknowledge.
0: All right. Well, I wanted to get to asking you about uh, what you mentioned in terms of gamified trading, but I'm seeing a bunch of questions uh, here in the chat that are too good to pass up. Okay. So, uh, and, and some of them dovetail into to some of the themes I wanted to cover one of them from Twitter, uh, Candace Rich is asking. Um, John Tamney, who's been on this show, is a friend of ours at the Atlas Society, Mm -hmm. wrote an article on short sellers uh, being heroes. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was back last year, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wants to know your thoughts. Um, Is there anything moral or immoral Mm -hmm. uh, right during the game stock? You you do talk a little bit about um, short sellers and the fact that this whole saga has really meant that um few are going to be engaging in that that the disincentives are so high um and that we might be seeing some more bubbles as a result so maybe speak to that question
1: sure i i i wouldn't call short sellers heroes but they but short sellers have uncovered some some big frauds and Mm -hmm. done a great service to retail investors but you're not there's no morality in in buying something and and buying the stock and hoping it'll go up. And there's no less morality in, in seeing it go down. But short sellers have long been vilified. As long as stock markets have existed, going back to the 1600s, uh, there have been periodic bans on short selling. Short sellers have been arrested, clapped in irons, flogged, um, you know, cast as sort of, sort of greedy devils. And it's just not true. Short selling is, is a legitimate practice that is very useful in markets and the um, restrictions and the lack of short selling have actually hurt the little guy. So short sellers, look, there's two things that you can, you personally can do as a typical investor, right? You're, I don't recommend that, uh, that any retail investor go out and sell stock short because it opens you up to theoretically limited losses, it's complicated, it's costly, you, you really should not do it unless you're financially sophisticated and kind of on, on Wall Street. Uh, you should leave it to the, the professionals and, I, and I'll throw derivatives in there too, even if you think you understand them. But short sellers do a service to you because um, you or I, um, there's two things we can do. We can see a stock and we can say, oh, I think that's a good stock. I'm going to buy it. Or you can say, oh, I don't think it's a good stock. I think it's too expensive or it's too risky. and I'm not going to buy it. So the you can vote yes or you can abstain. You can't vote no. And a uh, uh, short seller is, is voting no. So short seller brings needed balance to things, right? Because um, especially in a bubble, especially when things are very frothy uh, or there's something is just kind of too good to be true but too many people believe it, th- there needs to be a counterbalance. So somebody says, I'm calling BS on that. And I happen to be a person who has to do very careful research uh, because I'm open up to, opening myself up to unlimited losses and I'm going to bet against this stock. And short sellers, uh, more than people who are long, they are, uh, first of all, they're going against a long-term trend. The stock market's over time rise, so they're kind of fighting history. Um, but they're also, their money is expensive, and, and short selling is expensive. And so they need to sort of, to blow the whistle. They, they, they can't just say, I'm passively betting short. A lot of them will be active short sellers. They'll sell a stock short then they'll put their thesis out and say, I think that uh, you should sell Enron because of whatever. But, but most things that people sell short are not Enron or, or Valiant or MCI WorldCom. Most things that people sell short are simply stocks that they feel are, are too expensive, not necessarily frauds. And um, most short selling happens um, not, not by dedicated short sellers, but happens pe- people like Gabe Plotkin, who I write about in my, uh, my book. The guy who lost $7 billion because he was short GameStop uh, and other stocks that were affected. Uh, what they do is they have a pile of money. That's their fund. They take, they find, let's say, two stocks that are pretty similar in the same business. Let's say Best Buy and GameStop. I don't know if he specifically did that trade. Best Buy, he might say that's a best of breed uh, company in electronics and games and televisions. I like that company. I like where they're going. But not only am I going to buy Best Buy stock, I'm going to sell short GameStop stock, So I'm going to sell it and then get cash for selling it. Uh, and then I'm gonna take some of that cash and I'm gonna put more of it into Best Buy. And then if my thesis plays out, then I'm gonna make more money than just having bet on Best Buy. Uh, and if the whole stock market goes down, it's gonna, both of them will go down, but, but GameStop will go down more and I'm going to sort of mitigate my losses. And that's, that's the game they play. They don't take gigantic risks. But of course, they never expect something to go up, you know, a thousand percent, right? That's that's not in their sort of range of, of possible outcomes. Maybe somebody will buy GameStop and it'll double one day and they'll lose a lot of money. But no one's going to buy GameStop for 100 times what it was worth or 200 times what it was worth, which is uh, which is what happened because of this concerted squeeze and attempted corner that happened. And so that, you know, that blew up his his, his fund, which is something that I guess he probably he should have seen coming and no tears for, for him. But um, yeah, but, but short selling has become very, very difficult because they've been targeted, because they are sort of, they're seen not, like if hedge funds are public enemy number one, the short selling hedge funds are absolutely the, the top of that pyramid, the ultimate enemy. And to these, uh, these young people, uh, short selling, they, sh- they sold short GameStop and AMC and things like that that companies that did things that were very important to them as, as young people. I used to go to the movies all the time at AMC before the pandemic. I bought all my video games at GameStop. They're trying to destroy the company. And, and I, just to, to point this out, and I, I can say this and I'm blue in the face and people are gonna you know keep on saying it, but selling a stock short is not destroying a company. It's betting that the stock will go down. If I think that a, a stock that's trading for $10 should really be trading for $5, And I make that bet. I'm not doing anything to destroy the company. I'm just betting that the stock price is too high. Uh, The stock changes hands all the time, and the stock trading at five dollars is not going to destroy the company. It's just saying that this company is too expensive. And at any given time, many stocks are too expensive, right? I mean, so it takes it takes two to make a market, and short sellers are just making that market more efficient, providing liquidity. They're very useful to the system. They're not heroes, sorry, but I mean they are they are useful to the system and they have uncovered a lot of frauds.
0: Okay. Um, So Winnie, I hope we've answered your question about similarities between Wall Street bets and Occupy movement. Uh, Scott on YouTube has a couple of questions and they are about GME. Uh, What Mm -hmm. about how short sellers um, sold short more GME than there were shares available?
1: Yes. So that is a... um, uh, an also misunderstood point. I mean, the short sellers basically got over their, their skis because it's very very unusual. So let me just go back and explain it. I don't want to give too long of an answer, but 2020 was possibly the worst ever year for short sellers. All kinds of shiny dumb investments, like you know, companies that said that they you know, had a hydrogen powered garbage truck that would go a thousand miles on whatever, like you know, all these these wacky things. When they, even though they looked ridiculous short sellers would bet against them. And then they would keep on going up because you had all these new investors piling to the market uh, using their gamified trading accounts. And so things went up and up and up <clears throat> and short sellers had an awful year. And the things that they felt bet safe, safe betting against were the so-called meme stocks like GameStop, but their bets became excessive. So um, there's a, a, a free float in any stock. Those are the shares available to purchase. And in GameStop specifically, and this is very unusual, their bets against GameStop uh, exceeded the shares that were available to trade. And that is possible through a process called rehypothecation, where um, you, (laughs) without getting too wonky, I, I locate a borrow for a stock. I'm a short seller and I sell the stock short. Now I sold the stock to you. You don't know where the stock came from. All you know is that you bought the stock then your broker says, oh yeah, here's some GameStop stock. It's available to lend out, not knowing that it was already borrowed once and they will lend it out again. So it is possible and not illegal for more than 100% of uh, a stock to be sold short, although it shouldn't be, uh, but it can happen because um, because of a, a lack of, of communication between back office. Uh, there's of course a conspiracy theory that there are phantom shares and even more shares sold short than exist on a regular basis uh, through a process called naked short selling, which is um, has become much more difficult since short selling regulations were uh, were changed uh, more than a decade ago. Um, so um, yeah. yeah, in this specific case, more than 100% of the, the shares available to purchase were sold short, which is like a powder keg. It's like leaving like a bunch of dynamite out with like dry kindling and nitroglycerin on top of it and whatever, you know, you were just asking for an accident to happen. And these funds felt safe doing that and they shouldn't have. And uh, that that should have been a sign to these financially sophisticated buyers that they were uh, opening themselves up to a gigantic loss. And it's that, you know, so their fault, you know, for, for doing it, but they also were ambushed.
0: Okay. Um, on Instagram, zooming out a little bit, um, a lot of our audience is our young people and students, Margot on um, Instagram asks, with inflation, how are young people supposed to get ahead, especially with investing being such a beast to try and get into?
1: Well, inflation is, um, they call it the cruelest tax for a reason. And uh, inflation is, um, is, is not good for really anyone financially, except perhaps if you're a, a, a very big borrower, uh, let's say, uh, you know, there are are people my age um, who have uh, a lot of debt and not a lot of of assets, not a lot of uh, of fixed income assets. Uh, Let's say you took out a mortgage at 2.8% and you have this big mortgage. Well, inflation at 8% is pretty good for you. You're one of the few people uh, who actually benefit from high inflation. But if you're in your 20s, it's unlikely that you own a home. It's unlikely that you have this big fixed rate type loan and so inflation does make it harder to to get ahead uh but the people who are most specifically uh hurt by inflation are not young people but are older people who are uh who have been more prudent who basically who have a a lot of savings and don't have a lot of debts anymore so people who have been frugal I'm thinking of people like um you know um my 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 parents' generation especially you know who are living on a, a fixed income who have uh an annuity or have very conservative investments that pay them an income. Um, you know, They're better off if they have dividend-paying stocks, worse off if they have a lot of bonds, where in, inflation is basically corroding the value. If you're young, uh, it, it is harmful to have inflation, but you're in your prime working years. You're uh, the, the most desirable part of the, the workforce. People are, you know, the labor market is still very tight. So you're, you're at least able to partial, not that it's a good thing, but you're at least able to partially counteract inflation. And the type of investments that you have uh, should be skewed very much towards the types of investments that are the most shielded during inflation, which are stocks. Stocks are, are a natural inflation hedge to some extent, because companies, you know, a business has has debts uh, that are whittled away by inflation. A company has hard assets like land and buildings uh, that, um, that will become more valuable with inflation. And a company has sales that will be artificially boosted by inflation. So equities don't tend to do great during a period of inflation, but they are an inflation hedge. So young people are, are not the most disadvantaged generation when it comes to inflation. It's older people uh, who are the worst off, but of course it's not it's not good for the economy or society overall, uh, for sure.
0: As, as we are seeing. Um, so speaking of young people, this Robinhood app, we were talking about the gamification of trading and, it seems like on the positive side, uh, it was an easy entry for for young people, small investors who are potentially just becoming savvy about the market for the first time, but also it seemed to almost invite, or at least that was the accusation that it would invite compulsive trading, similar to compulsive gambling. Uh, And from an entrepreneurial perspective, the inception of Robinhood is fascinating. So perhaps share a bit about how the app got off the ground and the role it played in the saga.
1: Sure. So, I mean, if you just go back in, in time a bit, I mean, um, buying stocks used to be very expensive. So there, uh, there was a, a minority of the the population that had the, the wealth to be able to buy stocks and buying stocks, transacting in the stock market, owning an investment fund, even reinvesting your dividends used to cost a lot of money. Wall Street took its toll every, time you did anything in the market. And uh, over time, but especially since the late 1970s, uh, that cost has gradually come down. But what happened, um, and Robin Hood was not the first to do this, but they were the first to do it successfully. They launched a free trading app uh, where they said, you know what, There's these two guys, um, Vlad Tenev and Bajubat, who had worked for hedge funds, by the way, they had set up a business to allow hedge funds to trade more smoothly. They said, you know what, these hedge funds pay basically nothing to trade. People could do this too. It's not free, but it's very close to free. And we could do this for people. And uh, of course, nothing is free, but we can basically recoup those those costs and we can have a business built around this. And so first they built an app and they tested it with students at Stanford University. And they built a really beautiful app that uh, had a long waiting list. They created a lot of buzz in social media, had a million people waiting to join it when it finally went live in 2015. And between 2015 and uh, 2021, even though this is a pretty small broker, about half of all new brokerage accounts opened in America were opened uh, through Robinhood uh, because it was such a beautiful app. It was phone-based. It was basically like an app with a brokerage bolted onto it. Whereas everyone else, Fidelity, Schwab, they were uh, a broker that paid some guys to design an app that worked pretty well. These guys made a very, very intuitive app that, and its I don't believe it's a coincidence that uh, in terms of the fonts and the colors and the animations that it uses, bears a striking resemblance to daily fantasy sports and betting apps on your phone. Very, very similar. Confetti goes off, intermittent rewards, uh, re- prizes for referrals. The, they mainly grew not through advertising, but through giving you basically like a lottery ticket type thing for a referral. They said, oh, open an account. You get a free share of stock. What stock? Well, it could be a $2 stock or it could be occasionally a $50 or even a $100 stock. And so it's like a lottery ticket because you could open an app, uh, the, you could basically put $20 into the Robinhood app, $20, which you couldn't do many years ago and then get a $50 stock, right? So, you know, you, you just, just got something that's that's worth two and a half times as much as the money you put in instantly. That's pretty good. And then if you refer a friend, then you get another stock and that person gets a stock. And so it, it grew through this referral network. And the way that it worked is they fronted you the money. They would front you up to $1,000. So let's say you're at a to stereotype, but like you're at a frat party and somebody's like, dude, I've got this Robinhood app and I've been buying stock. You should do it too, and I get a free share of stock. And like, oh yeah, I was thinking about buying XYZ stock. Like here, open it up. In, in a few minutes, you can have an account, you put in your information, and even before you transfer money from your bank account, there is money on the account that they will provide you. That was the default setting. They would provide you money to trade right away. So that dumb idea that you had at the frat party, you could act on immediately and start trading. And because it was free, and it's not really free, uh, it uses a, a, a system of, of payments called payment for order flow, where market makers rebate money to the um, to the broker in order to execute the trade, because they make money, the broker makes money. That's how it's free. Um, the more you trade, the more money they make. So the app was designed to make people very, very active to basically, and it it. Whether by design, and I'm not—I I can't get into their heads—and uh, the founders of the app would not speak to me, and they were very cagey, and they—they uh, they kind of stonewalled me about lots of things. Although they did speak with me, um, you know, on just on basically to verify facts. But I, I do believe, and a lot of consumer advocates do believe, that the app is designed deliberately uh, to um, to make people hyperactive. And uh, I, I know for a fact that hyperactivity is inversely correlated with financial success. So it's designed in a way that correlates with failure uh, to make money or failure to make as much money as you should. Uh, there are many, many studies that document uh, how often you look at, at, at your brokerage account and how often you trade uh, being inversely correlated with success. And they would never really tell me, they would tell me like they would give me information that was like not even half of an answer in terms of how well their clients did. But I, I am uh, willing to venture that their clients do quite poorly uh, mm-hmm. on average. Um, and uh, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to support that that uh, contention, but I don't have absolute proof.
0: Interesting, yeah. Sometimes I run across people and I'm like, well, what do you do for a living? And they say, I'm a day trader. And to me, right. that always means n- no. <laughs> You're doing right. yeah. something do else. A,
1: uh, do not become a day trader. I mean, listen, there there are people, I. I you think a professional gambler is an oxymoron and there is a a very small subset of people who actually do make money gambling through using, you know, not because they're lucky, but because they're, they're smart and they're basically not even interested in the outcome of the games. They're basically just sort of, they're, they're playing a numbers game and they're, they're occasional anomalies. The house doesn't always win They're They're sort of, they're making a, a kind of scalping a small return. And I, I guess that is possible uh, as, a, as a day trader, but the vast majority of people I've met who are day traders, it is not possible. Uh, more than 90% of, of people who describe themselves as day traders lose money uh, and, and probably high 90% fail to, uh, to track a simple index fund. And they're much less tax efficient too. So uh, I do not recommend uh, day trading for anybody who's not a financial sophisticate and even people who are even people who have, let's say have left finance and 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 become one it's just you know unless it's it's your hobby and you're taking very minimal, minimal risks and you really do understand what you're doing i just don't really see the, the point in it because the beauty of the stock market is is that you go to work during the day to do whatever you do to make a salary or run your business or do whatever and then you have your savings which is working for you day and night you know why mess with that if you just invest passively. It's not a very satisfying answer to people because everyone wants to to beat the market. But uh, I can tell you that statistically, uh, if you pay very little and do very little, so you have a kind of a passive, low-cost, long-term, tax-efficient investing approach, you will beat 85% of individual investors. You'll be doing better than 85% of your neighbors. And you won't be able to, you won't get rich overnight for sure. uh, And uh, you won't have anything to to brag about you know when the stock market when the Dows up 600 points one day or whatever because you're just kind of along for the ride and you're along for the ride when it's down a thousand points one day but you know o- over time your your compounded gains will be vastly superior to people who who day trade
0: so you talked about this young crowd um, who villainized the the hedge fund mm-hmm. managers and even you uh, and greater object of their ire being short sellers, mm-hmm. but that Elon Musk and Shamath Pali Hapatiya were uh, entrepreneurs that they idolized. So uh, tell us about how those two people got involved in um, becoming GameStop boosters, if you will.
1: Um, I, I think that, so social media plays a big role, and I, I do describe that a lot of the book, and I, I have to say that i I. I've been a student of uh, of manias and panics and crashes and and um, kind of human good and poor decision making and investing for a long, long time, and you know, there's history does does rhyme, but I um, I learned a lot uh, in writing this book because there's a whole aspect of it that I had not appreciated, which is the nature of influence, the nature of social influence, and so I spoke with social psychologists and social media experts and uh, people who are experts in kind of influencer marketing and things like that. And um, the reasons that people get into the influence game are manifold. Some people do it for financial rewards. And there are lots of people you will find on TikTok and YouTube and whatever who promise to make you money in crypto or picking stocks or, or whatever and are, are uh, 100% self-serving uh, when, they, when they do it or it's in 99%, there will be exceptions. Uh, but there are people who, who do it for the, the psychic rewards. They like to be liked. They like to be followed. It gives them pleasure to be followed, to get attention. They just want attention. Attention is the currency of social media. And uh, I think for Elon Musk, who, as we're recording this episode, I think is still the richest man on earth, um, you know, he didn't need to, to make extra money, but he loves to egg people on. And he dropped a sort of a bomb in the middle of this episode. He kind of showed up when things were cooling off, when the, the mania was, was just starting to come off the boil, and he kicked it up another few degrees with one tweet um, because he likes to be a, a hero to young people. You know, I, I, have, I have three sons, three young men, and you know, their, their age cohort thinks Elon Musk is, is pretty cool and everything he says is pretty interesting uh, even when he doesn't know what he's talking about. So, um, and Chamath, I think was possibly more self-serving. He per- personally participated in it and then said he gave the money to, to profit. He went on, you know, on social media and said, oh, I bought, you know, options on GameStop. they like, oh, and I'm giving it to, uh, to charity. So, uh, another, uh, guy, Dave Portnoy, who was, uh, kind of definitely financially self-serving, uh, guy in social media and also is, um, you know, a shareholder in a gambling app uh, and, you know, put himself, he's Davy Day Trader is how he was known, had a couple of million uh, followers on Twitter and really fanned the flames. Although he did it financially, he was financially unsuccessful. He promised that he would hold AM, AMCs and other game stock, uh, meme stock, that he would hold it until the end, until the bitter end, no matter what happened. And then three days later, he sold it at a loss of I think $700,000 if I recall correctly. So, you know, it's, it's just, um, I, I, I don't, totally understand the the appeal, but it's these guys who never put on a tie or very rarely have to put on a tie. They're in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is cool. Tech is cool. Social media is cool. Tesla is cool. Uh, Owning a sports team is cool. And, uh, you know, being in sports is cool. Being irreverent is cool. Using memes is cool. Using memes rather than, uh, you know, boring text to communicate. Memes are sort of, you know, symbols. people use through social media which is hence these became known as meme stocks because that's that was the nature of much of the the sort of the the messages that were sent through wall street bets and other social media forums and um and so they they were cool with the kids and um and wall street was most uncool with the kids so you had one player in here who wound up losing a lot of money a hedge fund manager who went on a guy my age you're younger than me uh, Andrew Left, who was a, uh, an active short seller, who was already hated by the Wall Street bets crowd because he had bet against successfully bet against a couple of stocks that were very hot on Wall Street bets, kind of indirectly costing people money, I guess, who would bet on on them. And um, he said, "You guys are suckers at the poker table, and you don't even know it. You don't know what you're talking about." And he got steamrolled, and it was like a, a delicious payback uh, for these people. It wasn't it wasn't even that. They wanted to make money. They wanted him to lose money, which is getting back to this. You Definitive mentioned the envy. kind of envy being such a, a dumb vice. You know, I mean, it's I, I, I get it, but I, I really don't, don't sympathize with it. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a sort of a weird thing to do with your money is to, to weaponize it, to make someone else lose more money than you lost. I mean, but that's, you know, but that, that it was a big part of this episode. And then uh, awesome. a lot of these people were attacked, um, outside of the financial sphere attacked by having their social media accounts hacked by having their children, you know, people finding out their children's cell phone numbers and, and sending men- menacing messages to them or racist and bigoted messages to them. So a lot of crazy stuff. I'd be, you know, before I wrote this book, you know, my, my sons who were on this forum were like, dad, you need to really harden your defenses. And <sighs> so I took all kinds of social media precautions. I haven't been hacked or anything like that. All I've Received lots of 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 insults, which was fine. I'm a financial journalist; I'm used to that, but uh, but nothing. Um, you know, no one hacked my bank account for social media yet. Fingers crossed. Um, you know, and I had a whole social media audit, and also paid out of my own pocket for services to uh, to better protect myself. Um, you know, from a, any kind of nefarious online activity.
0: Good. All right, we have uh, four minutes and many more questions than we can possibly get to, but I wanted to, uh, we're not going to be able to answer what is a gamma squeeze in in a couple of minutes, but I did want to get to this one um, by Jamie on TV, on Instagram, uh, asking thoughts on insider trading, is it more conspiratorial or is there truth to politicians selling stocks before big crashes that's mm-hmm. you know something i think a lot of people are asking about um particularly with what happened during the lockdowns and mm-hmm. a lot of politicians uh having privy you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh to in- inside information and making financial decisions um and uh, offloading their stocks mm-hmm. onto people who didn't have that same kind of information
1: okay i'll try to answer quickly i'm a columnist not a reporter i can uh inject my own opinion here and it's something that i have written about. I think it's absolutely unacceptable for people who, I mean, it's absolutely, it's just like knowing your company's about to have a profit warning and being an executive, and you'll go to jail if you call your, tell your buddies at the golf course to sell all their stock. Uh, I think the same exact uh, ethos should apply to politicians who have knowledge about, they go, you know, they go out and they say, oh yeah, everything's fine, don't worry, the pandemic's under control, and they go and buy a bunch of stock in Gilead which is making the one drug that might be able to treat COVID or dumping uh, all of their their stocks when they're out telling people everything's going to be fine and they have this inside knowledge or anything like that. And it's been shown that politicians are some of the best investors out there. And it's not because they're so smart. It's because uh, as a group, they're they're privy to information that is useful to investors. Uh, It absolutely should not be allowed and it's not just a matter of their gain is someone else's loss because investing is a zero sum game so they're kind of stealing money really from other investors in an indirect way but also because it erodes trust in washington it erodes trust in in the integrity of markets and they the the rules are really toothless currently they i i, I believe that uh that anyone and, and not just just people in congress but also kind of uh high level bureaucrats and their families it's not a big sacrifice to have to own index funds. You know what, if you own index funds, you'll do better than most investors uh, who try to actively trade stocks. There is no reason uh, to, to own individual stocks. Let's say you own a bunch of individual stocks before you, you go into public office. Fine, put it in a blind trust. You know, that's okay, right? I mean, mm-hmm. just don't know if you own it or don't own it, but don't, you, you absolutely should not be allowed to, to trade and even to have the appearance of impropriety. You know, I'm a, an editor at the Wall Street Journal. I don't own any stocks, and it's not in, including things that I would never write about because it just you know someone could always come back and say, well, how did you how did you know how to to do that? And it seems like you made a lot of money. Maybe maybe you knew something. So it just just don't don't even go there. You know, just there, there's no reason today to have to own individual stocks or to trade them actively, and and there's no excuse for them not to do that.
0: I couldn't agree more. And uh, thank you, uh, Spencer, for this hour that you've given us. And I want to, um, if we can put his Twitter handle in all of the chats, it's at Spencer Jacob on Twitter. Um, Are you on Reddit?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm Spencer Jacob on Reddit. I don't use a pseudonym, but yeah, I'm not, you can't follow me on Reddit. You can only follow. But yeah, Spencer Jacob, J-A-K-A-B is the spelling my surname yeah and i'm on on uh and there's a, an author page out there somewhere but yeah uh twitter is the best place to follow me um and uh i still write occasionally i mostly edit uh, but yeah updates about the book and other things i think about so yeah thank you so much for uh for having me it's a, a great discussion and great questions
0: absolutely and a great great book i highly recommend everyone um Go out and buy it and listen to it also on Audible. Uh, Really terrific narrator that uh, Spencer got, so um, we thoroughly enjoyed it and we learned a lot. And I want to thank all of you who joined and asked such excellent questions. If you enjoy uh, our interviews and the content that we publish, including a lot of memes at the Atlas Society, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to support our work. Um, And I'm going to be on in 30 minutes on Clubhouse with our senior scholar, Professor Stephen Hicks for an Ask Me Anything. So go take a bio break, get some coffee, and I'll see you there. Thank you, Spencer.
1: Thank you.